So our VBS series um, was called In the Wild. And they covered, like Miss Elva was explaining, stories about how wild it is to follow Jesus, right? Our faith is pretty wild. We believe in things we can't see. You know what I mean? We uh, hear voices that aren't really voices. It's sort of weird, right? It's this, uh, it's this wild thing that we have, this faith that we have. And it doesn't always make a ton of sense. But the kids have been talking about how wild it is to follow Jesus. They covered stories like, um, when Jesus got lost as a kid and they found him in the temple, when Jesus was baptized and walking on water and when he rose from the grave. Some pretty wild stories. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon about why we can trust the Bible. And uh, let me just say that if the wild stories in the Bible, if the sort of wild and crazy stories trouble you, if they might stop you from believing uh, go onto our website, take 30 minutes to listen to the sermon from a few weeks ago about why we can trust the Bible, and I think that will help. But the truth is, is that our faith is pretty wild, amen? We don't do things the way that everyone uh, would probably normally do things. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. We don't believe that it's a cosmic accident. We believe in things that, uh, like angels and demons. We believe in heaven and hell. We believe in God himself. We believe that God is both one and he's three at the same time. And we don't know how it works. We, know, we believe that Jesus is fully man and he's fully God at the same time. And we don't know how that works. It's pretty wild. So for today, I want to continue the theme from VBS and talk about how we have a wild faith. Take a, take a, a few snapshots of faith in the Bible. One from Jesus' life and two from the Old Testament that did not get covered uh, over VBS. So first up, one of the wild stories is Abraham and Isaac. So uh, Isaac is his son. In the Bible, Abraham is the original example of faith. So when we think about how wild our faith is, we can go back to the original example and look at Abraham. And then there was a story in the Bible, and again, this is like 4,000 years ago. It's a very long time ago. God had established a relationship with Abraham, had said, had said you're, my, you're my people, and in you I will build a great nation. The problem with that was that Abraham was super old. He's about 100 years old, and his wife was barren. They didn't have any children, and God said to him, if you leave your father's country and you go to the place that I've called, I've called you to go to, I will give you... I will make your family into a great nation. And Abraham's looking around going, oh, I'm 100 and my wife can't have children and she's also old, so I don't know how this is going to work. But he did. He left. He went. And then God blessed him and God gave him a son. His son, Isaac, is a miracle baby, right? A miracle baby. And all of Abraham's hopes and dreams, he's left his father's home, he's gone out, and all of his hopes and dreams are wrapped up in Isaac, right? Because Isaac is his line, like he's going to carry his name, and God's promised to make me into a great nation, and I only have this one son, this one son of promise. And then in Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham to take his son, Isaac, up onto a mountain and to sacrifice him, to kill him. This is coming from Genesis. This is the first book of the Bible, chapter 22. It's up on the screen. It's also in your outline. Chapter 22, at the very beginning, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, 
And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Not a good thing you want to hear from God, right? You don't wake up in the morning, have Cocoa Puffs, and expect that God's going to say something like this. This is, this is not good news. This is not good news. You already have a clue, though, in the very first verse where it says that God tested Abraham. But understand, Abraham did not know that it was a test. So Abraham thought, God is speaking to me, and he's saying, go take Isaac, your miracle son, in whom all of your hopes are wrapped up, and go and sacrifice him. See, back in uh, ancient, the ancient Near East, ancient Mesopotamia, child sacrifice was not uncommon. It was a real thing, and we know that Abraham came from those kinds of religions. In fact, there's a city in Canaan. Canaan is, is the, the promised land. There's a city in Canaan called Tophet. And Tophet in, in Hebrew actually means roasting place, and it was a place where um, the religions of that area would go to burn their children as sacrifices to their gods. That's why it was named that. It was the roasting place. So when Abraham hears God say, go sacrifice your son to me as a burnt offering, it would have devastated him, but it would not have surprised him. Because that was a thing. That was a thing. And he's still getting to know God. He's still getting to know God. So anyway, Abraham, by faith and just sheer trust in God, I don't know what you're trying to do. I don't know what the, where this is going, but just in sheer trust says, okay. Man, I cannot believe that. That is wild. He says, okay. But before he has a chance to actually do it, God stops him. And he uses the moment, in Abraham's faith, he uses that moment to show Abraham that he's different, that God is different from all the false gods. God's saying, I'm not like those other gods. I'm not like that. You're not following me like all those other people follow all those other gods. You and I are different. I am different. But he couldn't have got to that point. He couldn't have shared that so vividly without using Abraham's faith to reveal that. And he does the same for us. So even today, God uses our faith to distinguish himself from all the other things that we believe or trust. There's a lot of things that you believe. There's a lot of things that you trust. God is different from those things. But you only realize that, you only really comprehend that when you move in faith and do something crazy for Jesus. Amen? When you do something wild in your faith and then God comes and catches you and pulls you through that, that's when God shares with you how different he is from everything else that's going on in your life. Another wild story comes up in 1 Kings chapter 18. This is uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. In terms of uh, biblical timeline, this is during the era of the kings, because it's in 1 Kings, hence the name. So the Israelites have settled into this land that God had called Abraham to go into. They've settled into the land. They've built a kingdom. They have kings. The problem was that they were always 
sort of running away from God. They couldn't seem to find a way to stay faithful to God. And they kept worshiping false gods and idols, uh, particularly a god named Baal, who you might, have, you might normally call Baal. So in this scenario, they're in, they're in Israel, and Elijah is a prophet for God. But in 1 Kings 18, he's the only prophet for God that's still around. All of the other prophets are prophets for Baal. And he's just fed up with it. He's just done. So he makes a challenge. He challenges all the prophets of Baal. He's, he's alone and there's uh, more than 400 of them. And the challenge is this. Let's each build an altar and make a sacrifice on the altar and uh, pray that our gods will light the altar. So here's the challenge. There's you guys. There's about a hundred of you in the room. There's one of me. So imagine there's four times as many of, of you as there are right now. All the prophets of Baal, and then there's Elijah. And he says, let's both build an altar. You build an altar, I'll build an altar. You, you make a sacrifice, I'll make a sacrifice. We just lay it on the altar, and then we'll pray and see if you can get your God, or I can get my God to light it on fire. Challenge accepted. All the prophets of Baal, they're like, game on, let's do it. So they go and they make, a, they make an altar, the prophets of Baal. They go first, and it says in, uh, in the beginning of the chapter that all of Israel is watching. And he's invited the king to come, and everyone's watching. They've made this altar. Now remember, Israel is largely worshiping Baal at this point. And Elijah's whole point is you guys can't just keep sort of worshiping God. You just have to pick one. So here's the challenge. So, so all of Israel is watching, and they're building this altar. They build it up. They put, they put stones. They put wood. And then they start praying. And they pray, and they pray, and they pray. And they, they cry out to their God. And they're praying, and they're praying. And then Elijah starts to make fun of them. It's his prerogative. You know, he's the underdog. So he starts to make fun of them. What's wrong? You know, maybe your God is on vacation today. Maybe you should try tomorrow. You know, maybe he's indisposed. And the way that I hate the Hebrew is actually, it's like maybe he's on the toilet. Like maybe he's occupied, right? Um, and then so they start cutting themselves. And they start stabbing themselves. And they're drenched in blood. And they're running around the altar, crying out to Baal. Please light this thing on fire. From morning to noon. And then Elijah calls everyone over to him. And he takes 12 stones. According to the 12 tribes of Israel, he puts them together. He puts wood on the altar. He digs a trench around the altar. He sacrifices a bull. He puts it on the wood. And that's enough, right? That's enough. If you're just going to say, okay, I hope this works. God, go ahead. That's enough. But he says, hang on a second. Go get me four pots of water. Why would you? Why would you, right? So he gets four pots of water, and they dump it all over the altar. Now, wet wood is not the kind of wood you want to put on a fire, right? So it's all wet. And then he says, four more. So they get four more pots of water, and they dump it all over the altar. And he says, you know what? Let's get four more. And they put more 
12 pots of water on the altar. It's drenched. And the trench around it that he dug is full of water. Why? Why would you do that? Here's what the Bible says in uh, 1 Kings 18. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, that's the sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Why is he pouring water all over the altar? Because God told him to. And I've done all this because of you. Now answer me, O Lord, answer me. That these people, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all of the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. If Elijah had to run that by a committee, they would have said no. For sure, I mean, no. I'd like to pour water on the altar before I ask God to light it on fire. And the church said, no. <laughs> you know, normally we say, and the church said, amen, amen. And the church said, no, no, <laughs> no, don't do that. It's crazy. Why would you do that? If you're making decisions based on sound reasoning and logic, you wouldn't do something wild like pour a ton of water on the wood before trying to light it on fire. But in this life of faith, God tells you to, you just do it. Amen? We don't always conform to best practices. We don't make business decisions in the church, in our personal lives. Sometimes God calls us to weaken our position so that he can show himself to be powerful. Sometimes God asks you to do something that takes away so that he can show up. This is the way that, that Paul says that in the New Testament. This is in 1 Corinthians, the very beginning in chapter 1. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, no man might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses broken people. He uses low people. He uses weak people so that he can show up powerfully. Elsewhere, Paul describes it, and he says that where I am weak, he is strong. God sometimes calls us to do things that are wild and crazy so that he can show up. Amen? So we don't always do things that are just logical and reasonable and make perfect sense in a, in a perfect world. Because it's not a perfect world. Our faith's not always logical, but it's powerful because he's powerful. Finally, last story is from Jesus' life. 
in Luke chapter 7, there's a woman. Uh, and she's known around town for being a sinner. And she goes to see Jesus. And here's uh, the beginning of that story. starts in Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees, Pharisees are religious sort of elites. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Jesus is uh, eating at this holy roller's house, and uh, this woman of the city this sinful woman comes in and she sits behind him. He would have been sort of sort of laying like on his side. And she, she comes behind him and she's just weeping. She's just weeping. She's weeping so much that the tears from her eyes are wetting his feet and she begins to clean his feet. Because back then, everyone's wearing sandals. Your feet would get very dirty very easily, very quickly. So she's just crying all over his feet. Because she's a sinner. And because he's Jesus. And so she takes her hair even and starts to wipe his feet off with her hair. And then she takes this very expensive ointment. You would have kept something very expensive in an expensive jar. And she pours it over his feet and, and starts to clean his feet like that. Um, don't just think of this as a story. There's a temptation just to think this is a, a, a weird, interesting story. Just like close your eyes and imagine what it would have been like for a woman who is called a sinner, who is deemed unrighteous, who has a bad reputation, what would it have been like for her to hear about Jesus who's forgiving people? And she goes into this very righteous house and she walks up to Jesus and she's just broken. And she's just crying uncontrollably. And she's putting her hair all over his feet and pouring that ointment all over his feet. She's not holding anything back. Guys, that's the lesson. This wild, crazy faith that we have doesn't hold anything back. This faith requires sacrifice. It'll cost you something, right? It'll, it's a sacrifice. It's also a humbling thing. So the sacrifice from this woman is that she's, first of all, she's giving up this ointment that she's been holding on to, this very expensive thing that she has, but she's also sacrificing any pride that she has, any status. Uh, when, you sit, when you get on the ground in front of someone and you wipe your hair all over their feet and you're crying, you're not holding anything back. You've made a great sacrifice. In fact, you've made the greatest sacrifice. Because our faith is a faith that costs 
everything. The Bible says that if you aren't willing to die, you can't follow Jesus. If you're holding anything back, you're not really following him. So when you believe like that, it's the most humbling place to be. And you won't want to hold anything back because you won't hold anything to yourself. If you give your life to Jesus, what would you hold away from him? What's more expensive than your life? So this faith that we have costs us everything and makes us ultimately as humble as possible. Humility is an interesting thing because in this world, everyone wants to be proud of something, right? You want that promotion. You want to be proud of that promotion, that title. You want that trophy on the shelf, right? You want to be proud. You want to be proud of your kids. You want to get good grades. You can be proud of your grades. You want to have a good job. You can be proud of your job, right? You want to live in a good community. You want to have a good house. You, we want to take pride in something. For us, we have a, a wild faith, a crazy faith, and we boast in Jesus alone. And that's hard. In this world, that's hard because the world is always pushing us to, to promote ourselves, but we boast in Jesus alone. It doesn't always make sense. Sometimes it hurts. There are trials. It's difficult. But guys, it's worth it. It's worth it. Um, one time I heard someone explain that trusting Jesus is like being on an airplane. So you're on an airplane and everything's chill. You know what I'm saying? Chill, okay. Everything's fine. And then someone walks up to you and says, I don't know if you know this, but I'm just letting you know, the plane's crashing. And you go, whatever crazy person, keep going. You go, no, no, the plane is crashing. Look out the window. And so you lean over, excuse me, and you, yeah, actually, it's, you know, trending down, if you know what I'm saying. So, but no one seems to be panicked. But you keep looking, and now your heart's going, and you go, yeah, okay, so what do I do? Well, there's a parachute underneath your seat. You need to take it out, you need to put it on, and you need to get out, you need to go up to the door, open the door, and you need to jump. Not what you wanna hear on Southwest, right? So the issue is that you know, you're pretty sure, in fact, let's just call it you know that the plane is crashing. But you also know that if you get up and you grab this parachute, that everyone's gonna think you're crazy. And if you put the parachute on and you walk up to the door, people are gonna be going, don't do that, don't do that. We don't do that, you know. Excuse me, sir, please sit down. You know, would you like more peanuts? And you are going, no, 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 there's a real issue. I need to, and you start opening the door. If you jump, it's, gross, it's nasty, it's scary, the wind, and you're, uh, and you've never done this before, it's terrifying, and you pull the thing, and it's, and you don't know where you're going to land, and it's scary. But Jesus is like that parachute. If you find out, if we found out that we're crashing, that your life is crashing, 
If you just believe that the parachute will save you, if you just believe that it's there, be like, oh, well, I've got a parachute, so it's fine. Does believing in the parachute help you if you jump? You have to strap it on, right? So that's what we do when we give our lives to Jesus, is we strap him on and we say, I know that everyone's comfortable on the plane, but it's crashing. And I know they're gonna look at me like I'm crazy. And I might be crazy, but God has told me the plane is crashing and I believe him. And you strap Jesus on and you give up everything, all the comforts, all of the peanuts, all of the videos or whatever you're watching on the plane, you give up everything and you jump because he's worth it. Because you're crashing and it's not gonna be comfortable and it's not safe, it's dangerous and you don't know where you're gonna land but you're gonna land, amen? But you are gonna land and you'll be safe. Knowing about Jesus isn't enough, you have to trust him with your life, even if it's the crazy thing to do because we have a wild faith and God blesses us when we respond to that in faith. Maybe God showed you that a long time ago, maybe he's showing you that right now that your world is crashing Either way, it's a very humbling realization, amen? It defies logic, it doesn't make sense, it's gonna cost you something. You can't get it from anyone else, it's Jesus alone. He's the only one that offers safety and salvation when you realize that your life is broken and you need healing, Jesus is the only one that could heal your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day, thank you for this faith. Thank you that we can know you and we can trust you. God, thank you that in different ways at different times, you reached into our lives and you showed us that we're crashing. That we might have things we can brag about. We might have things that we're proud of. We might have, have things that we are, are trusting in, but we're broken. And God, thank you for the good news that we can have healing in Jesus that we can't truly be fixed, we have to be forgiven. And thank you that we have that in you. God, I pray today that if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted you with their lives, that they would see, not the logic of it, but that they would just see that you're speaking to their hearts right now, and they would just listen to you. Help them to see that the only way out is to fall deeply into you. Help us to strap you on and to jump, to take that leap of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Our, uh, our wild faith is pretty crazy, amen? But it's entirely built on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna sing a song first. If at any point you wanna come up and you wanna pray, uh, Robert and I will, will be up here. We'll probably be singing, but you can come up and and talk to us if God's moving in your heart and you just want to share that with someone, uh, we would love to talk. Robert, say hi. That's Robert. I'm Aaron. Okay, let's sing a song.